Uh, you guys can flip over to the book of Acts and chapter 18. Uh, today, uh, as many of you know, you know, is a pretty important day in the world, right? Because it's Groundhog's Day. And we're hoping that little guy doesn't see his shadow so that we get, well, at least I am, so that we don't get uh, six more weeks of winter. Uh, but there's another reason it's an important day, which I'm sure you guys know, and that's because it's Palindrome Day. Uh, the date today is the same forwards and backwards, 02022020. And it doesn't matter what country you're in, it's, if you do month, day, or day, month, year, it's the same, which is amazing, doesn't it? It's been 900 years since that happened, so, woo! <laughs> and it's John's birthday, so there's three things, three big things. I can't think of anything else that's big today. Oh, and their anniversary. So there's four things. So there's four big things. I can't think of anything else that's going on other than that the Chiefs are going to crush the 49ers today. Sorry. Yeah, I know. All right. Acts 18. Uh, these narratives that, that we have here in the book of Acts uh, that God has given us are not just so that we can look at the Apostle Paul and the other apostles and just be amazed, although we are. Uh, they're here to provide a template for us to learn and, and, and you know, how to follow, what it, what it means to take part in the Great Commission. So that's, that's what they're there for. They're there to inspire us as individuals and also as the church to, um, to get involved in the work that he's left us here on earth to do. I don't know if you ever thought about that. You know, why does he save us and then leave us in this place? Why not just take us home? Well, it's because there's, there's work for us to do. And so I hope our time in the book of Acts is having that effect on you. There are a lot of things we can do with our lives, a lot of things we can chase after. But only kingdom work is going to what's matter, what, what is, is what's going to matter when all is said and done. You know, we all say we want to hear the Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But, but rarely do we really live that way. You know, I say I want to hear it, but do I functionally live in a way that, that, that matches that, that, that desire? Now, the truth is, most of you probably don't feel as though you have much to offer in kingdom work department. I found that that's to be true. Most Christians just say, what do I have to offer? Uh, every one of us can point to Paul and say, well, I'm no Paul. I can't, I can't do what he does. I'm not even close. So what's the point of even getting in the game? And you know what Paul's answer to that would be, I believe? I believe he would tell you, I can only do these things through Christ who strengthens me. And that apart from him, I am nothing and I can do nothing. And that's, that's true. And as we're going to see in our passage today, Paul was just like us at times. Tired, alone, afraid, discouraged, depressed, even frustrated. But God supplied what he needed at every turn, when he needed it, so that Paul could keep on running the race and keep fighting the fight. And he does that for us as well. So in, in Acts chapter 18, we're going to read uh, the first, or look at the first 17 verses. The first verse just simply tells us that after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, Paul had been, just spent some time in Athens. He went to Mars Hill where all the philosophers were and, and, and went kind of toe-to-toe with these guys. And now he heads about 50 miles west to Corinth which was another major city in Greece, uh, though it's debated. Some people uh, estimate that its population was like 750,000 people at this time, which is a huge city. That's like, like going into just downtown Portland, you know, all the people that are there. Uh, in his book called Evangelism, Tim Keller compares some of these old cities to modern-day cities to get, just give us an idea of kind of what we're dealing with. He says Athens was like Boston, an intellectual center. 
Corinth was like New York, a commercial center. Ephesus was like L.A., a pop culture and a cult center. He said it, not me. And Rome was like Washington, D.C. It was the political center. Now, Corinth was a very dark spot on the spiritual map. It was very prosperous. It was a merchant city that was very prosperous, but it was also a very immoral city. They had this reputation in the world for their sexual promiscuity and practices, so much so that people coined the phrase Corinthianize to, to, to refer to stuff that was grossly immoral. So, for instance, you might say, you know, boy, the Super Bowl really Corinthianized the commercials this year. Now, I haven't seen them yet, but you can bet that that's going to fit at some point um, because it always does. That's kind of the idea of what it, what that means. And Corinth was kind of this anything goes kind of place. And that's kind of what our town, our town, not our town, our country is becoming. We're, we're becoming kind of like Corinth. Anything goes. So that's what Paul's walking into, just to give you an idea. His work was cut out for him, to say the least. This is probably a super overwhelming town to walk into, to think that you've been given the task to go into this place where they're just proudly immoral, and there's all these people, and you're alone, and go tell them that they need to believe in Jesus Christ, turn from their sin, and trust in Him. That would be hard to do. Well, verse 2 tells us that he's introduced, or we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla, who provide us kind of an example of this Christian power couple. I like these two. There's something about a husband and wife team that serve Christ together that is really cool. So verse 2 says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, we don't know for sure why they were forced to leave Rome. Uh, one historian suggests that Claudius, who was the emperor, got tired of hearing the Jews bickering about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And he just had had enough and said, I want some peace and quiet. Get him out of here. That's, that's one theory that's, that's put out there, but we don't know for sure. But it does just so happen that Aquila and Priscilla, when they get to Corinth, they happen to be tent makers, which just happens to be Paul's trade. What a happy coincidence, right? So they join forces to become co-workers in their, their trade and also in the gospel. Verse 4 tells us that when Paul wasn't making tents, he was making disciples, which sounds a lot like Paul. Verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This idea of shaking out your garments is reminiscent of what we read. You know, he's kind of going Old Testament prophet on them. Nehemiah did something like this in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel said something like this as well. Your, your blood be on your own heads. Now, it's, it's kind of like this idea that we see in the New Testament when Jesus says, don't give to dogs what is sacred or don't cast your pearls before swine. The idea is there comes a point where it's just time to move on. Uh, if you were to present a pig with a nice, you know, pearl necklace, they wouldn't appreciate it, right? <laughs> and they're not going to think, oh, thank you, and try to put it on and walk around. They're, they're, they're just going to, it's going to be in the mud. If you give a dog something sacred, we have a puppy at home right now. If I gave him something sacred before I left, when I got home, it would be in a thousand pieces around the living room. Wouldn't He wouldn't appreciate it at all. He would have a good time with it, but that's what he's saying. There comes a point when, when you're telling somebody about Jesus, 
is obvious. They, they don't care. They're not going to hear it. They're, they're angry about it even, and it's time to move on. And that's exactly what Paul does, though he didn't go uh, very far. By the way, it doesn't mean that Paul is done with the Jews completely, because if you look at Ephesians, uh, or Ephesians, if you look at verse 19 when he gets to Ephesus, where's the first place he goes when he gets into town again? Back to the synagogue. So he's just saying, this group of people, I'm out. I'm going away. But like I said, he doesn't go very far. Look at verse 7. It says, and he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Uh, to me, this is funny because I'm picturing, you know, Paul's, you know, he shakes out his clothes. He's like, I'm done with you guys. They're like, good riddance. We're, you know, we hope we never see you again. And they watch him walk, you know, out front to the curb and then turn and then turn again and go to the house next door. And now they're like, well, this isn't, this isn't what we had in mind at all. So now they just get to like, look out their window, you know, and watch Paul, you know, the church grow. And this would have been kind of frustrating, but to me, it's funny. And, and part of me thinks, could it get much worse than that? Well, actually, yes. Yes, it can, because look at verse 8. It says, Crispus, which, by the way, is a fantastic name. If, uh, if any of you guys are thinking of, you know, naming a son, Crispus is a good name. Who doesn't want to hang out with Crispus, right? <laughs> Just, sorry, verse 8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So now you've got the, the actual leader of the synagogue who switches teams. This is really good for the church, but this is really bad for Paul because now he becomes the poster child again of everything they hate about Christianity. And this wasn't Paul's first rodeo, so he has a pretty good idea of what's going to happen next. In every other town, when they got frustrated with Paul, they put the hurt on him every time. So it's kind of like, you know, when you were a kid and you knew you were getting a spanking, you know, you, you put stuff down, you know, you start padding your, your drawers and stuff. So Paul's probably thinking, oh, here it comes, you know, same, I know what's going to happen next, start putting on his riot gear. Uh, but verse 9 is surprising. We, we, we just see the kindness of the Lord towards Paul in verse 9. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I love that God knew exactly what Paul needed to hear right at the moment he needed to hear it for him to be able to, to keep going. Because I'm sure at times that would have been frustrating and hard, and Paul could have said, you know what, I'm, I'm tapping out. And here God comes and tells him, don't be afraid. Keep telling people about me. I'm with you. I've got your back. Nobody's going to harm you. Now, the truth is that harm or the threat of harm caused Paul to relocate frequently, didn't it? He wasn't in towns very long most of the time. But this is different. And the reason it's different is because the Lord says to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. In essence, he's saying, Paul, I need you here for the long haul. There's a lot of people I need you to reach. There's a lot more work to do, but I'm going to sustain you through it. So hang in there. And he hangs in there for a long time. Verse 11 says, and he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's probably a record for Paul in, in, in a place uh, where, where he's actively evangelizing. Verse 12 says, but when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, that's the like a, a Roman official, a governor of the area, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
That's actually true this time. Usually when they would accuse Paul of something, they would accuse him of something false or wrong. But this is exactly what he was doing. He was telling people, we don't have to worship God according to the law. We can worship God according to grace, according to what Jesus has done, his righteousness given to us so that we don't have to produce our own. Very different message. They didn't like it. They go to Gallio. Gallio doesn't care. Uh, Paul's about ready to open his mouth and do like he always does and start to defend himself. But it says in verse 13 or 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, here's where you would normally expect to read that the mob grabbed Paul, drug him outside angrily and just beat him to to pulp. Right. That's what generally happens next. That's not what happens, because God made a promise to Paul that he wouldn't be harmed in Corinth, and God keeps his promises. He did not, however, make that promise to a guy named Sosthenes, uh, who we read about next. Sosthenes was the guy who replaced Crispus, can't say that enough, as the ruler of the synagogue, and for some reason they grab Sosthenes, like it's kind of, kind of an odd thing to do, but they grab him in their angst, and they beat him instead. So verse 17 says, and they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, we don't know if it was the Jews or the Greeks that grabbed him and beat him. It, not that it matters a whole lot to Sosthenes because, you know, he got beat either way. It could have been the Jews were frustrated because he didn't do his job. You know, you didn't get Paul convicted here, so, you know, we're going to do this. Or it could have just been the, the Greeks frustrated with these guys. We don't know. Um, interestingly, though, I find it pretty cool that later on when Paul writes his first letter, he's left Corinth and he writes a letter to them. This is how his letter starts out. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, either that's a really common name, which I don't think it is, or Sosthenes, just like Crispus, switched teams and became a believer. Pretty cool. So now they've got to find another guy to be the ruler of the synagogue. Probably not a job that you'd want in Corinth at that point. Okay, so that's kind of our narrative for this morning. Now we're going to look at, at what it means for us uh, today. Firstly, we know that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he felt inadequate and he felt overwhelmed. It's hard to think of, of Paul actually ever feeling that way, because when we think of Paul, we just picture him different than that. But he actually admits this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, where he says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. You know, try to imagine walking into this huge city by yourself. Maybe Luke was with him, but they have a great statue of Aphrodite, the sex goddess, on the highest hill looking down at the town. You know you've been tasked with this job of telling a city full of proudly immoral people that they need to repent of their sin and turn to Christ and believe or face the judgment of God. That would be terrifying. I just try to picture, you know, God giving me that assignment, you know, walk into downtown Portland and go give him that message. It's just like, oh, I would be filled with weakness and fear and much trembling. That's exactly what I would say. And yet in this passage, we see how God supplied for him in every way. It reminds me of the old phrase, God does not call the equipped, He equips the called, and that's what we see here. God has called each one of us to participate in doing kingdom work and taking part of the Great Commission. And if I were to take a poll, I think most of us would say, I feel completely inadequate to do that. 
I feel unqualified for the task. But the good news is that God specializes in using the unqualified and the inadequate. You remember the old schoolyard pick uh, when we would, you would like, if you can think back to grade school, dodgeball day, and you had two captains and they would start to pick teams one at a time. You know, who did they pick first? You know, the strongest, the fastest, the best athlete, you know, the most popular. Eventually they get down to the kid, you know, who's got like his shoes on the wrong feet. Uh, maybe, you know, his shirt on backwards, which I actually did one time for school picture day. Got the picture to prove it so I, I can rely, you know, I, I know what I'm talking about here. Tag, right, you know, it's pretty good. So that's the way we pick our teams, but that's not the way God picks his team. First Corinthians chapter 1 again, verse 27, it says this, Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. If that describes you as well as it describes me, welcome to God's dream team. Right? It's like I can get behind some of those descriptions. That's good. So, so let's look at how God provides what we need for the task he's called us to do. I see four things in this passage that God provides companions, God provides currency, God provides converts, and God provides comfort from his word. All of these things gave Paul what he needed to keep on keeping on. And if the Apostle Paul needed these things from God to be effective, you can bet we need them too. So the first one is that God provides companions. As Christians, we're not meant to go it alone. There's this version of Christianity out there that we refer to as Lone Ranger Christianity that a lot of people subscribe to, where they can just stay out by themselves, do their own thing. You know, I can I can worship God out, you know, fishing on a Sunday morning. I don't need to go to church and be with the rest of those knuckleheads. I get what people are saying. Or even in churches, they'll come, but they'll stay on the outskirts. They never really they never really get in. They kind of stay to themselves. That's just dangerous. Um, getting away from the herd, no offense, but it's a good analogy, is dangerous because the Bible tells us our enemy is like a lion, a roaring lion who's looking for stragglers that he can pick off and devour. And that's the truth. We're, we're much better together than we are apart. We're more, we're, we're more stronger. We're more stronger. We are stronger. We are more effective. We are more protected. And we are much less likely to fall when we're doing this thing together. And if one does fall, guess what? There's somebody right next to him to help him up, dust him off, and get him moving in the right direction again. Paul gets to Corinth, presumably alone, without Silas and Timothy by his side. But verse 2 tells us that he finds Aquila and Priscilla. I like that. Just finds them. But this wasn't a chance meeting at all. God brought them together to form a ministry partnership. But the way he brought them together would have been kind of difficult for this couple. Because they were kicked out of their hometown. Like they were living in Rome, probably doing, you know, what people do when they're just living in a place. And all of a sudden, they're forced to leave their home. That would stink. I don't know if you've ever been, like, forced to leave a place you didn't want to. But that's hard. But God has a way of arranging these things. It probably was a very big trial for them to have to face. And at times like these, we wonder where God is and why he's not intervening on our behalf. But God knew exactly what he was doing. And they would eventually see that clearly too. But at the moment, it took great faith and, and trust in God to, to, until they got to kind of figure out what God was up to. 
I relate to this very well because when we moved here from Idaho, um, I wasn't very happy about it. I didn't want to leave Idaho. I'm the kind of person that doesn't like uh, change, nor do I like adventure. So I'm a pretty exciting guy. I would, would probably would have never willingly left my town that I was living in. But God had a plan. When we moved here, we bought a house in DRW, that's the Deschutes River Woods for you that don't know it. And guess who we lived right next door to? Aquila and Priscilla. But their names were David and Carrie Thompson. All right, so Pastor David and his wife, that's our families moved in. I moved, we moved in right next door to them. Happy coincidence? I mean, it's just amazing to think that uh, that was over 20 years ago. I get emotional thinking about it. Over 20 years ago, I didn't want to go. God knew better. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't been partnered with David in ministry these last 20 years. Huge what God's done. And I, I didn't see it at the time. I remember being grumpy about it. You can ask my wife. She's not here, but she can hear me in the nursery. Yeah. Uh, but thank the Lord that he didn't do what I wanted. He did what he wanted because it was better. If you're a Christian, God has a plan and a purpose for what he does in your life. Trust him. If you're part of this church body, God has brought you here for a reason. You have a part to play. And all these people here around you are your fellow co-workers to join forces with so that we can do more damage together, right? All right, so now Paul has some companions, but he doesn't have any way to provide for himself. So the next thing we see is that God provided currency. And I'm not going prosperity gospel on you people. Don't worry. You know us better than that. It just starts with C, so I had to go with it. Do you see that? They all started with C. You know, you're not used to that kind of professionalism here, but, but today you get it. The point that I'm trying to get at with this is that when we are doing the will of God and doing the work of God, we can count on the provision of God. You know, again, you try to imagine showing up into a strange town you've never been to, no job, no friends, no family, no backup plan. How are you going to make a living? What are you going to do? And yet God provides for everything. First by tent making. Paul had a trade he was good at. So he brings some people in and, and he starts making tents. There's something respectable, by the way, about knowing that Paul knew what a hard day's work meant. Right? I like that. Hard work is godly. It's good. It's always a good idea to ask yourself, what is the point of our hard work, though? Some of you guys work a lot, and it would be good to ask yourself the question every once in a while, who am I working for? And I don't mean the guy behind the desk, you know, with the title. Who are you working for? And what are you working for? Paul wasn't working to make himself famous. He was working to make God famous. He wasn't working on building a kingdom for himself here. He was investing in the coming kingdom. And we're called to do the same thing. Now, the second way that God provided for Paul was through the church. Uh, when Silas and Timothy came to town, they came with a gift, a donation that, that they'd collected from the churches to give to Paul. And a transition happens here where Paul goes from tent making to, to more full-time ministry in the church. He's able to devote more time now to ministry. And this is really similar to the way things happened at the door when we started out too, because um, when we first started out, all of the pastors worked, worked full-time jobs and also uh, did the church ministry. Uh, this is referred to as being bivocational, where you split up, you know, into two occupations. And uh, in smaller churches, it's often necessary because they can't afford to pay a full-time pastor. But because we had to start out this way, 
we discovered there's a lot of benefits to the bivocational model. It allows you to have more than one pastor, because rather than paying one chunk to one guy, you can split it up into multiple guys. It keeps you rubbing elbows with people outside of the building, which is important. I think anytime we get kind of cloistered, I think that's a monk term, uh, into one spot with one kind of group of people for too long, it begins to affect. So we need to be out, out in the public. And then it also keeps you relatable with other people that work for a living. You know, I'll be honest, I've only been a pastor for two years, but my hands are way softer <laughs> than they were when I was fixing copiers for a living. And cleaner, cleaner too. Look at nothing under my nails. No toner. David was a chimney sweep, so he had the same thing. Even though some of us have become full-time in the last couple of years, we still believe in the bivocational model and we'll still implement it. Um, and we would go back to it, by the way. If it was ever necessary, we'd go right back to it in a heartbeat. In some ways, we almost have to keep David. We have to restrain him from going back to it because he really likes that model. But I can speak for every pastor here when I tell you that each one of us would continue to do this, whether we got paid or not, because it's not a job, it's a calling. In fact, when, when the church started, it cost us money to be pastors here. It just did. We paid all the bills, we had to sign our name on all the leases, and we happily did it. We would happily do it again. But over time, God has just brought more and more people, more and more funds, um, and we've been able to devote more time to the church. The truth is, when we were working a job, doing the church ministry, our, our families suffered a lot because we didn't get to spend much time with them. And now we actually have more time to devote to the church and to our families, which is great. So we're grateful for the generosity that, that you all have you know, supplied um, to keep this church going and to further its mission. You know, you've been here a long time. You know we don't pass the plate here. We're not going to start anytime soon because we just don't want to make that a focus. But we know that God's going to provide for us. He always has. He always will. At the town hall meeting the other night, I mentioned this, but it's good to mention again. Uh, this year, between our care fund and our missions fund, we put out over $40,000 with a little church like this. That's amazing. And it's just cool. And that's because you guys are generous in your giving. And we don't have to say anything about it. The boxes just get filled up. And it all gets taken care of. Thank you. That's good stewardship on your part. Okay, the next thing we see is in this account is that God provides converts. I love that God said, there are many in this city who are mine. And if that was true in Corinth, guess what? It's true here too. We don't know who they are yet. We don't know when they're going to come around and believe. But I, I can tell you, I know there's many in this city who belong to God. And we get the opportunity of telling them about Jesus. That's our job, by the way. We preach the gospel. God takes care of the rest. That's pretty easy. You know, if it was up to us to go save people, I don't, that'd, be, that'd be horrifying. We just preach the gospel. If you preach the gospel, if you tell somebody, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's accomplished for you on the cross, guess what? You did what God asked you to do, and he's pleased with it. Even if the outcome means... They don't, they, they, you know, you have to dust your clothes off and walk away. You did your part. God's pleased with it. That's good. He'll take care of it from there. And you never know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen to that seed. You know, somebody else is going to come along and water it. You, we don't have to be the ones to always harvest. We just have to trust God that he's going to do what he does. Ministry can be very discouraging at times. If, you, if you've ever been part of a ministry of any kind, you know what this is like. There are times when you wonder if anything you are doing matters at all. Like, is anybody listening? If you ever, I remember working with uh, young people at the other church for a long time. And I just remember thinking, if I didn't show up, would it even matter? You know, is anybody even, am I getting through to anybody here? Does it, is any of this matter at all? And Paul, this guy preached the gospel day in and day out. And it didn't always seem to amount to much. 
But every once in a while, God gives you a Crispus or a Sosthenes, right? Or a Lydia or whoever. And you see their life transform before your eyes. And it's, it's the best, right? There's a lot of negative things. There's a lot of losses. We see a lot of people just make a mess of things. That, there's more of that. So when, when you get one of these things come along, one of these wins, remember it. Remember it. We need to do that. I think about the, in the Old Testament, you know how they would pile up stones so that when they'd walk by them again, they'd go, why is there a pile of stones over there? Oh, yeah, that's the time when God did this, right? And our future generations could do the same thing. When I think about all the stuff God's done in this church over the years, if we were to stack up stones, there'd be no place to sit in here. It's been amazing to see all that he's done for us. God gives us great encouragement through the testimonies of changed lives. And, and, and when you see a life transformed and somebody following Christ, somebody make a decision to stay you know, with their spouse or whatever it is, all of those things encourage the body and encourage us as pastors. And I would just encourage you guys, if your life's been changed by somebody in the church, somebody who's taken part in ministry, your kids in the youth group, your kids in the Sunday school class, warm coffee and donuts on a Sunday morning, tell somebody. Let them know. I see you. What you're doing matters. makes a difference in my life. Encourage them. We need that. It's like putting fuel in somebody's tank to know that this isn't for nothing. Now, the Bible says don't grow weary in doing good because in due time you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. But it sure is helpful if somebody tells you, hey, that mattered. Right? Okay. The last thing we see is that God provided comfort from his word. And I just love this. You know, at that time when Paul, like I said, was probably ready just to say, this is it. I'm out. I'm tapping out. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going home, whatever. We don't know what happened, but God comes to him at night in a vision and says this, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. At the right time, God provided Paul with the exact words he needed to be encouraged, comforted, built up in his faith, and and put, put fuel in his tank so that he could keep going on. And that's what God's word does for us. If we spend time in God's word, It'll do the same thing because there's going to be times in this journey where we get tired and frustrated and, and, and whiny and afraid and all those things. And it can seem like I'm serving Christ in vain. I'm following him in vain. What's the point? And his word reminds us of what he's done and what he's promised. Some of the words that God spoke to Paul are applicable to every Christian. Right. Of course, I want to take the part about never being attacked or harmed. I want to like apply that to myself. But we can't do that because that wasn't even true for Paul all the time. That was specific to him in Corinth. But there are other words here that we can claim for ourselves because they're repeated throughout the Bible. And when something's repeated throughout the Bible over and over again, that means you're supposed to hear it. So hear these words of God for you this morning. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. (laughs) Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I hear those words even as I read them this morning again. It's like something just coming over you, like a warm blanket of comfort, knowing God has said this. He's promised it to us. It means if God is for us, who can be against us? So the next time you're feeling inadequate to take part in the work that God has called each of us to do, Remember, remember that the Apostle Paul felt that way at times. But also remember that we have a God who delights in using the inadequate. And he's ready and willing to provide everything we need to do the work he's called us to do. That's encouraging to me. So maybe this week, it means that you're supposed to pick up the phone and call somebody. 
Maybe it's a kind word to a stranger, an email or a note you need to write. Maybe you need to stop and pray some with somebody. Uh, maybe you need to share a verse of Scripture with somebody. I don't know what it is, but he's called each one of us to, to take part in, in something that will lead other people to a Savior that they desperately need. And we have this, this opportunity. Somebody did it for us, and we get to return the favor and do it for somebody else. Father, thank you again for these narratives that are in the book, the book of Acts. Lord, we know that they're here so that we can, we can have a model to follow, that we can have a template. Thank you, Father, that you've left us here for a reason. And thank you that it's not going to be forever, that there's going to come a point, Lord, where we get to go home. We get to be in your kingdom where everything is put right. But in the meantime, Father, help us to really think about why we're here and what you've called us to do. Help us to live our lives in a way that we will hear those words. Well done good and faithful servant, enter into my rest and give us opportunities this week. Lord, I pray for each person in this room to have gospel appointments from you to go and talk to other people, to encourage people, to get into conversations and situations that will lead people to be able to tell them about a savior named Jesus who went to the cross on their behalf, suffered and died in their place so that they could be forgiven and have life with you eternal. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to to send your son for us. Lord, we're forever grateful and we give you praise in his name. Amen.